0: edit this out, Logan.
1: <laughs> uh, hi, I'm David Kern.
0: I'm Heidi White. Tim McIntosh.
1: And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. Yay. Right now we are discussing Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, and we'll see if we can even get through it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How's it going, guys? So great. So great, David. So great. Someone commented on Facebook how we were, you know... Getting more professional. I don't know what it was, and then, and then we're doing, and then really in reality, we we're just derailed. we can't we can't really do anything here. We're barely functional as the reality of it. We are the here to discuss hold. exactly. We are here to discuss discuss Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. We're going to discuss chapters eight through twelve. This is the beginning of part two in this book, um, and this section has a couple of. Uh, very key, very famous scenes. Uh, in particular, we've got the praying in the church scene and we've got the fishing scene. Uh, the fishing scene, I believe, is chapter 12 and I think the praying church is chapter 9, if I'm not mistaken. So we're going to discuss um, those scenes, I'm sure. Um, before we do that, though, I, I wanted to ask you guys two questions. The first question is... is I'll just say the two questions and then we, I'll let you guys pick which one we talk about first. The first question is... Why in the world did Hemingway start a new, what he calls book, where he did? Like, why does the book, why does he not just move on to another chapter as opposed, you know, why? I mean, he calls it chapter eight, but it says it's book two. Does that question make sense? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So that's one question. And then the second question is this. A lot of people have trouble with Hemingway. As people have said it on the Facebook page, we know that. We've known that before we ever went into this conversation. And I was thinking about, you know, what it is that often causes people problems with Hemingway. And I started thinking about how with this particular book, it can feel like, it can feel aimless. You know, like, where are we going? What's the point of all this? I think there's great reasons for what he's doing there. But then I started thinking about maybe the problem is unlike most books it's not clear what the characters are after like mm-hmm. in other words what's the problem they're trying to solve which tends to be the thing that drives plot so i was thinking maybe we should talk about that as well in in the sun also rises what is the what is the the thing that our characters particularly jake barnes our protagonist is is searching for what are they you know what's their what's their journey for you know any other different sort of Metaphors we want to use, the, the different ways we want to express it. So those are the two kind of preliminary questions I want to ask, and then in the second half of the show, presumably we'll we'll talk about those two famous scenes. And I know Tim, I know you're, you know, we're a little we're a little tighter on time than we. we this can't be one of those hour and forty five minute episodes, unfortunately. So I, I wanted to just kind of lay out the four things that I think we should talk about, so that we can. You know, let that kind of be the agenda for today's episode, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> because you know we're we're trying to be buttoned up and professional here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tim, what do you what do you want to talk about first? Which of those those first two things?
2: I kind of want to throw a theory into the stew about why uh, people might not be crazy about Hemingway. Okay. My theory is um, that. His main characters often embody sort of the worst, uh, the worst aspects of, let's say, traditional masculinity. That's neither a term. That's kind of a term right now. I'm using it as a term of opprobrium. It's mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, okay, do you guys ever watch Parks and Rec? The show, oh, yeah. Parks and Rec. So Ron Swanson.
0: Yeah, I'm not a monster.
2: Yeah, I have a soul. (laughs) So Ron Swanson is this great character. And part of the reason that he's such a great character is because he kind of embodies the worst aspects of this kind of like vision of masculinity. He never talks. He just wants to work with wood. He, you know, like. like, he's He's the stereotypes. He's the stereotypes. And he, it's. So funny. (laughs) It's so funny. But I think there's a little bit of... um, There's a lot of Ron Swanson in Jake to completely misappropriate from a contemporary sitcom back into this very sad novel. When when Jake gets asked a question, how are you doing, Jake? Fine. What have you been up to? Oh, not much. You know, and, and so... I think it's easy to kind of see these things in at least the caricatures of men, if not like the reality of some men that oh, you know, we don't find particularly endearing, it's just sort of um we we kind of like wish that we could leave that aspect of uh you know kind of like the caricature of masculinity behind and so I wonder, yeah, yeah. if that might have something to do with why. Hemingway at least Hemingway's protagonists are not embraced and then on the other side yeah, the, you've got Brett who's not exactly the easiest character to like also I'll stop there
1: yeah I think you're right there's a there's a sort of um <clears throat> um the characters are, are are putting on this sort of machismo uh this sort of like swagger mm-hmm. um that 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 never feels totally genuine. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you know, like they're trying to, they're constantly trying to one up each other. Like the conversations between Robert Cohen and Jake Barnes and you've got Bill and these guys, the way they talk to each other is not unlike how men often talk to each other, but there's, you know, there's a sort of, um, sadness at the core of it. Yeah. Um, you, you know, some people might say it's an example of people, someone who's trying too hard, right? Uh, why do people try too hard to be somebody? Usually because they're not happy with who they are. Yeah, um, and I think that that's there is something at the root of this. I think that's a big Hemingway thing, and I think it's something he struggled with in his own life. I mean, there's a reason why he he'd get himself he'd get photos taken of him as a hunter or with guns or like shirtless and barrel chested, you know, in the in the wilderness, like a, like in a field somewhere, and like and
2: speculating about Ernest Hemingway's like sexual life is a cottage industry, you know, because of the reasons that you mentioned that he seems that his um, desire to kind of sell this hyper-masculine image, Mm -hmm. it's like the guy who goes and buys a Corvette when, well, when he's my age, you know, when he's middle-aged and everyone (laughs) wonders, okay, what is he trying to hide? Or like, what is he dealing with you know and it yeah it's like Hemingway a lot of Hemingway's life was kind of lived in in that mode. Yeah. Guns, elephant hunting, volunteering bull bullfights. Bull fights, <laughs> like Ernest, what's going on? But I do really yeah. think I mean as a defender of Hemingway, I think he liked hunting. I think he liked bullfights. I mm. think he seemed to be like an actually pretty courageous guy, and I also think, I think he was nurturing some genuine sadness about like the kind of world that he was born into and yeah, other aspects of his life. He made he made mistakes early in his life, um. So I, yeah. I, I tend to read him a little bit more as. I guess on the surface, even though I know that a, there was a lot happening underneath the surface and I, and I think I, I find myself whether or not it's fair or not wanting to defend him against certain um uh, i don't know attacks or abuses that he had something like grave and tragic to hide, and all of the bravado was just a front to kind of keep people from seeing that,
1: maybe. I think you can be into, like I think you can be into woodworking and hunting, and whiskey. In the case of Ron Swanson, um, and still have a sense that people use those things to process trauma, right? Yeah. Um. To to you know get away to evade their sadness, and I think that a lot of t- what Hemingway is doing there is recognizing some of his you know the 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 ways that people use things that are good in their own right but can they can be means of coping. So Heidi, you are both a woman and a trained you know trained psychologist or what are you trained what is your actual what is it? a psychologist?
0: Um yeah, I have a masters in counseling. Yep.
1: Okay. Um
0: but I'm not a doctor, so I can't be a psychologist. But that is okay. neither here nor there. Proceed with your question. I just that, don't want to misrepresent I, myself. Right. I, want, I didn't want to
1: misrepresent you either. <laughs> right. Um, um, so I, I'm curious to know what, from those two perspectives, from your training and then from being a woman, hmm. um, how you respond to the sort of uh, try-hard machismo, right. mach- Macho, you know, approach that these guys have in this book, and whether that's for you something that you that just kind of annoys you?
0: No, it's not off-putting to me at all. There's, and and we talked some about how Hemingway does it. Like, how the heck does he do it? And I don't, I don't know. But there's something about these characters; it's incredibly endearing to me that because they do have this veneer of toxic masculinity, and uh, but. There is underneath this just very intense vulnerability to all of the men in this novel and and in all I think in all of Hemingway's work, he does an incredible job of uh, enabling readers who are approaching with some compassion to see beyond that um you know, toxic crust, and I'm not talking about like the mushy inner child within. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like just wounds, wounds, like just brokenness mm-hmm. and displacement. And to go back to the question that you asked earlier, David, about um, the aimlessness of the novel in this novel, I, I think in this novel in particular, it's inc- it's very aimless, and. To put kind of a, a a literary perspective along with the psychological perspective, one thing that Hemingway does with absolute brilliance is I cannot, I mean I it's so overwhelmingly genius to me what he does is he takes these traditional literary forms and just subverts them uh, throughout his novels. and And if you know that, it might help orient you within the novel. For example, you asked about the 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 book breaks, yeah. Right. So we, we've gone from, they live in Paris. That's their home, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're constantly drifting from place to place, which is one of the things that Hemingway is exploring. Um, and so the yeah. What book, makes
1: us do that? What's the effect yes, of doing that? Exactly. All that sort
0: of Why do people do that? Does it work? You know, if they're trying, if we're talking about compensating for some kind of inner woundedness, does that work, right? That's yeah. one of the things yeah. that Hemingway's exploring in this novel. And um, so the break in the plot from book one to book too, is them leaving their home and going on the road. So there's an odyssey, right? There's a journey. And journey narratives are very, very common in Western literature, but Hemingway is subverting it, right? Instead of moving, instead of going home, they're leaving home, right? So it's Mm -hmm. an inverted odyssey instead of, or if you want to look at it as like a quest narrative, what are they searching for, right? They're not going for some holy grail of some kind. They're going for their own pleasure without the resources that they need, which is a subversion of a traditional quest narrative. So one of the things that he's doing in these novels, and it might help orient readers who are like, what the heck is going on, is he's taking traditional novel forms and inverting them, playing with them, subverting them in some way, and And that meta narrative again shows kind of the brokenness and displacement and lostness of that generation. Not even their novels can be traditional novels anymore.
1: So not even their stories have. Yes. Book three is one chapter at the very end. So we get like a quarter of the novel is book one. And then basically three quarters of the novel is book two. And then at the very end, we get a little coda, which he calls book three. And so there's like, there's not the, the sort of. Order of it is is sort of um, it's kind of warped. Uh, it, it it warps. It throws you off. It you know it feels a little. There's like it creates dissonance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big word I've been thinking yes. about with this book. To to your point is if you feel dissonance reading this book, you're reading it right. Then you are feeling what you're supposed to you're feel. Reading it right because you're yeah. He is not. He's not trying to craft an orderly narrative that follows you know the traditional the traditional tropes. He's trying to say that. There is a dissonance that has been introduced into the world. There is a lack of order. And so to create a book that, you know, the very form of the book and the nature of the writing itself is the objective correlative to the core theme of the book.
0: Exactly. And he has all the tropes in there, right? He's got like boy meets girl, but he he subverts it. He's got a quest. It's subverted. He's got an odyssey. It's averted. He has heroes who are, he, who he undercuts at every turn. He has dialogue that leads nowhere, but then later you find out that it reveals something that the characters didn't even know about themselves. One helpful way to read this novel for people who might be completely lost in it and uh, is if you read the whole thing and then go back to, and then go back and read it again in the chunks, like it's, you see some of the things, right? Some of the, yeah. some of the dialogue that seems like completely aimless, like it leads nowhere, it reveals nothing. It actually does, but you need to know what happens later. For example, in this yeah. section, we find out that Robert Cohn and Brett have been to San Sebastian together. Now, if you go back and read that section again, you there's several little clues in the conversation that feel like completely aimless, like they're going nowhere. But what we find out later is that they, people were hiding from each other um, and, again, subverting that traditional form of dialogue revealing, right? So it's, it's a, if you know that about Hemingway and particularly about that novel, it might help readers feel a little bit more oriented. There's something going on that he's, he's trying to make the readers feel displaced and disoriented because that's how the characters feel all the time.
1: Yeah. That's how though, that's how we enter into the story. It's like an invitation for us to enter into the pathos of the Mm -hmm. story when they, and when we feel that way, that's, you know, you know, that's, that's part of submitting to the story too, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) We can't just, uh, well, you know, submitting to the story comes in lots of different forms. Tim, go ahead.
2: Just to echo what Heidi was saying, think about the episodes between Jake and Brett. There we're set up with this sense of anticipation that Jake and Brett belong together. They have this kind of um, hidden affection for each other and nobody really knows about it. Brett's engaged to another man. She's divorcing another man. But she and Jake really have this unique connection. So... Like a Gatsby Daisy thing. It is. When So when Jake and... Brett first get together after that opening bar scene. We're like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. Oh, wait, it can't happen. He's injured. And then there's another moment when Jake and the Count show up at, excuse me, Brett and the Count show up at Jake's apartment. And she says, do you want me to send him away? No, no, no. I'll send him away. And then you're like, okay, great. They're going to like, something's going to work out. And then... She didn't really send the Count away. She just sent him out for champagne. And then at the end of book two, excuse me, at the end of book one, there's another moment. She runs away with Jake from the bar. They leave the Count behind and they go to her apartment and he goes home and goes to bed. End of the book. And so there's these kind of series of false promises Mm. that keep building And they can't go anywhere. We know they can't go anywhere, but there's still this kind of like desire to, I mean, like you can kind of hear, I'm trying to think how to gently say this in a way. It's like what Jake must feel given his injury. There's this desire that's just unconsummated all the time anywhere. It's thwarted and it will be thwarted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a, That's a really, really sophisticated thing to be able to pull off. These kind of like false starts over and over. Because incredibly enough, they keep the narrative moving forward. There's there's a built into the narrative that makes you want to keep reading.
1: Yeah, because the job of a writer in a scene is to offer you something like as a reader, is to invite you into the pathos of the moment and then to offer you some sort of I mean I'll put it in very like simple terms but to like offer you some sort of reward right like to make to let there be some kind of a payoff right maybe maybe sometimes the payoff is like it's it's tragic of the the payoff of that moment is tragic and so you as the reader feel this like longing for someone to be free or to be out of danger or whatever sometimes it's for you know Elizabeth and Darcy to uh to finally you know mm-hmm. forgive each other and you know get married, you know, have a conversation where they're actually on the same wavelength. Um, sometimes it's for the bad guy to get taken down. And here he's he's bringing us to those moments again and again and again. And then ultimately there's no payoff for us as readers. And that's where the dissonance comes in. Yeah, But it couldn't be any other way. It just can't be. It can't be any other right.
0: way. Right. And you know that from the beginning. And that's why, again uh, Jake's wound is this, uh, I almost like convergence point for the whole novel. Like the fact that he can never consummate his relationship with Brett completely undercuts everything. It makes him the hero, a side character in his own story.
2: That's a great way to say it. And
0: that is a great, uh, so you have this kind of constant, as you guys are both pointing out, this constant sense of thwartedness in the story. Like, and it and it raises the question what is the point of this story? If boy isn't gonna get girl, then what's at stake? Where are we Like, going? what's at stake in this story? Are we just traveling around drinking? And then and that's when we have a choice, right? To because that actually is what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. They're just traveling around together with people that are kind of this uh, continually shifting constellation of dysfunctional relationships, uh, moving in and out of each other's lives. um, And they're just traveling around drinking. And it does raise this question of unfulfillment in the reader. Like, no matter what happens at the end of this story, what am I going to feel? Am I gonna feel like something if there is some kind of resolution? Mm-hmm. And then we readers have a choice, right? We either enter yeah. into that and say, that's gotta be one of the points of this story. Maybe maybe I should enter into that. Maybe I should feel the displacement and the dissonance and 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 allow that to you know be uncomfortable, like let it be hard to read. Because you can't read this novel unless you're willing to let it be hard to read.
1: I was thinking about how. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody talk about the way that Hemingway's books are like invitations or exercises in empathy. Yes. And like... That to me seems he, the whole point. He like is inviting... I, yeah, I just don't know that I've heard anybody put it that way. I'm mm. I'm sure people have. I just don't know that anyone's used that word. And so what you guys have been saying the last couple of weeks it made me think about that. Because, you know, all of these characters, on the one hand, it's this constant like waxing and waning of empathy for each other and even our narrator is trying to like there's times when he talks about how he feels sorry for other people and then sometimes he's feeling sorry for himself and he's asking us to have empathy for him and then sometimes he's just like so fed up with the other people and he can't manage to produce any empathy within himself and then Hemingway's inviting us as readers to to have empathy for characters and there's this sense in which this book is so much about it's not about nothing it's about every day, you know, people talk about how his books are about nothing, but only because they're not about like battles and love stories and, you know, great
0: traditional narratives, traditional
1: conflicts. What it's about is it's about the things that people do every day to deal with the fact that they're unhappy Mm -hmm. and whether or not that works. And so, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, I've talked about pathos earlier. And I think a lot of writers are inviting us to have experiences of pathos in our interactions with books. And I think that the distinction with Hemingway, and the thing that keeps his book from this book from being about being coming nihilistic, which is what he sometimes gets accused of, is the invitation to empathy. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people are saying, feel something about what's happening, you know, feel something for yourself about what's happening in the book. And Hemingway saying that we need to have empathy for the characters and for the situations. And that's why there's a universality to it.
0: It's very well Um, said.
1: But let's talk about this. um, Let's talk about these other two scenes because I want to make sure we have plenty of time. It seems like maybe an abrupt transition, but I think in the end, we'll be able to wrap, we'll be able to tie them back together. Chapter 10, we have the church scene. And then in chapter 12, we have the fishing scene. Let me go ahead and read, since I have it right here. And for the sake of time, I'll read the passage in the church and Heidi and Tim, why don't you guys, or uh, Heidi, for now, why don't you find the fishing scene? And then you can read that passage. When it's it comes to
0: really it. long, so.
1: But we'll have to jump around a little okay. bit. So you, and then Tim can if Timmy, you can do that together. Because um, I think there's some dialogue in there that we want to cover. Does that work, Tim? Yeah, great. So on 102 in the uh, the, the classic Scribner's one with the Paul Sayer painting or the cover design, um, the orange one um for a book cover enthusiasts might not know who paul if you're not a book cover enthusiast you might not know who paul sarah is i realized as soon as i said it that might have been like a deep cut for four listeners um so 102 chapter 10 at the end of the street i saw the cathedral and walked up toward it the first time i ever saw it i thought the facade was ugly but i liked it now i went inside It was dim and dark and the pillars went high up and there were people praying and it smelt of incense and there were some wonderful big windows. I knelt and started to pray and prayed for everybody I thought of, Brett and Mike and Bill and Robert Cohn and myself and all the bullfighters separately for the ones I liked and lumping all the rest. Then I prayed for myself again. While I was praying for myself, I found I was getting sleepy. So I prayed that the bullfights would be good and that it would be a fine fiesta and that we would get some fishing. I wondered if there was anything else that i might pray for, and I thought I would like to have some money. So I prayed that I would make a lot of money. And then I started to think how I would make it. And thinking of making money reminded me of the count. And I started wondering about where he was and regretting I hadn't seen him since that night in Montremart. I don't know how to say that. And about something funny Brett told me about him. And as all the time I was kneeling with my forehead on the wood in front of me and was thinking of myself as praying, I was a little ashamed and regretted that I was such a rotten Catholic, but realized there was nothing I could do about it at least for a while, and maybe never, but that anyway, it was a grand religion, and I only wished I felt religious, and maybe I would the next time. Then I was out in the hot sun, and the steps of the cathedral, and the four fingers and the thumb of my right hand were still damp, and I felt them dry in the sun. The sunlight was hot and hard, and I crossed over beside some buildings and walked back along side streets to the hotel. And I do want to read this next paragraph. I think it's important. At dinner that night, we found that Robert Cohn had taken a bath It had a shave and a haircut and a shampoo and something put on his hair afterward to make it stay down. He was nervous, and I didn't try to help him any. The train was due in at nine o'clock from San Sebastian, and if Brett and Mike were coming, they would be on it. At twenty minutes to nine, we were not half through dinner. Robert Cohn got up from the table and said he would go to the station. I said I would go with him, just to devil him. Bill said he would be damned if he would leave his dinner. I I said we would be right back. Um, this whole chapter has a lot in it, but we can focus on these three paragraphs. Um, so Hemingway gets accused of writing short, snappy sentences. Accused. And then we get, we get a, uh, looks like it's an 18 line sentence here. <laughs> and before that, like a 10 line sentence, um, so I guess I want to do... Like I'd love to do a little close reading on the, on the form of that, if that's okay. We'll get it and hopefully this will get us into the themes. Why does he do that? Like for an author who, ha, who is known, you know, I said accused, but he literally does. He writes mostly short sentences. But then we get these long sentences here. And why do you think he does that? And, and what is the effect of that? And how does that tie into the themes? Heidi, you are thinking. So I'm going to call on you before you've got your thought fully, fully. Oh, great. Thanks. Fully.
0: um so i had not ever noticed how long the sentences were in this paragraph and this paragraph that you just read about the church is mightily it's it's mighty important so (laughs) um so why would it be a long sentence hmm
1: i mean is that why because he wants he this is different he wants to draw attention to it and it's basically I, saying this is important.
0: I think so, but and I I am thinking about kind of the internal process of praying through something and thinking through something that you don't understand. And um and how in your minds that all kind of jumbles together. And I wonder if if the form is reflecting um a an attempt to make sense of religion and faith in a life lived entirely under the sun, right? Which that's the title of the book. It's in reference to Ecclesiastes. And we have here then, um, Jake praying about everything under the sun and nothing that's not under the sun. Right. And, um, and how he can't, he can't find his faith. He can't find his way because all he can see is what takes place under the sun. I pray I get more money. I pray that we have a good time at the fiesta, right? Like that's, that's like a five-year-old prayer um, has nothing to do with the soul. And he,
1: he lists the people that he knows. And-
0: yes. And he has like a great love and he thinks that Catholicism is a grand religion, but there's a, there's a, this sentence almost like reflects like the blockage That's like this big, long blockage between Jake's soul and his life lived under the sun, which is how, Mm. why he can't connect beyond the life lived under the sun. And, Mm. and he even says, is it here that he says, I can't, um, I wish I wasn't such a rotten Catholic, but there's nothing I can do about it. Like you're literally in a church. So there, you can't think of anything to do about the fact that you're not a, rot, that you're a rotten Catholic, like there's, but these long, to your point about the long sentences, he, it's this mis- meandering lostness that's expressed in a long sentence. You get lost in it. um, And it's almost like a, 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 the form is reflecting that sense of meandering lostness. That's the best I can do since I didn't have time to gather my thoughts. <laughs> I I did a really long objective correlative to what's happening in this sentence. <laughs>
1: to what's happening in your brain? Yes. <laughs> um, Tim, off air, we were talking about this scene very briefly. Heidi said, "There's no way yeah. we're going to be able to keep this episode to an hour because it's the 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 praying in the church and the fishing scenes <laughs> are in this book." <laughs> and uh, and then, um, you you pointed out that the first time you read this. You know, yeah. you remember thinking that, that when he dips his, when he walks out and his fingers are wet, that you know he might he'd been crying
2: or something. But the then you realize, sentence before you go on, just so in his yeah, I yeah, the hot sun. So this is late in the paragraph. I was out in the hot sun on the steps of the cathedral, and the four fingers and of and the four fingers and the thumb of my right hand were still damp, and I felt them dry in the sun. And, and,
1: you,
0: and you said. His religion drying in the sun. It's so yeah. good. I love this book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you said, um, you said, you know, you thought at first he was crying, but then you know, you realized it was holy water. Um, this is one of the things that Hemingway is so good at. You know, this is what we were talking about how he's different from Dostoevsky, because you know, he's he. You know, you mentioned the scene about from the Cormac McCarthy, where the guy gets shot, and yeah. They, doesn't tell you you get shot. It just tells you the effects of him getting shot and allows your imagination to work on it. Same thing's happening here. Yeah. Um, what does that little little moment there mean for this book, do you think? Now, I don't usually ask a question that's that general. <laughs> what does this mean for the whole book? But I... You know, trying to get at the heart of like, how do we get at the heart of this passage, um,
2: which Heidi says is very important.
0: <laughs> you <laughs> know, means it is.
2: So <laughs> the way that you phrased the question, I think, kind of like in a way, begins the answer. What's the heart of the passage? There kind of isn't one. It's he's hmm. in the church, he's praying, and like Heidi said, it's it's this kind of childish prayer and there's nothing when i first read this and the second time i read it and every time i've read it i keep wanting jake to to have a moment or to like meet god or to like truly see himself like all of these moments that could mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. happen on the steps of a beautiful old church all of these moments are kind of open to him and what we get instead is we he kind of like slides down the surface of enacting church of Hmm. enacting prayer Hmm. and he even like kind of acknowledges it he's sliding down the surface of it there's not a kind of there's not a moment where he connects with God, where he feels like he's actually communicating with God. He begins to get sleepy. Hmm. He has to kind of like conjure things that he needs to pray about. And it just feels, I mean, again, you can read this as, Jake, you're not doing your duty as um, a good Catholic, or you can read it, I think the better way to read it is, have sympathy for this man who can't even find solace for himself, S-O-L-A-C-E, for himself in the church. Hmm. He can't even find any sort of um, deep connection with God who exists outside of this plane. Those things are, they're kind of lost to him.
1: Hmm. You know, I love that you pointed out that this is this beautiful church because one of the things that is so I mean, it's right there on the surface with Jake Barnes is that he's a journalist. And as a journalist, he has an eye for recording what he sees. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we get these long passages, like as they're driving to the fishing scene where he's recording what he sees in nature and he sees, he notices things about people. And, you know, there's almost a private, you know, like a, you know, the old pulpy private, like a Ross McDonald novel with the Lou Archer detectives, where every time someone comes in the room, they're like sizing them up. They're like, he had, you know, ink stains on his fingers and pencil. You know, yeah, his ear, and like every little detail matters. And there's, there's that sort of approach here in Jake Barnes, but he then doesn't take that to your point. Take those images and recognize what they mean. Like he sees that the church is beautiful, Mm. but it doesn't, it isn't like transforming him. And there's this line right after that part that you said. It says, "The sunlight was hot and hard, and I crossed over beside some buildings and walked back along side streets to the hotel." And like the juxtaposition of that sentence mm-hmm. with the sentence where his the the sun he's got the, the holy water on his water and on his fingers and he feels them dry in the sun. And then it says the sunlight was hot and hard and it crossed over. So like you get the imagery of of cross of a cross. He crosses over besides some buildings and the sunlight was hot and hard. And like there is a sort of in in those those two sentences, there seems to be a sort of suggestion or an allusion to the idea of like picking up your cross and that being difficult hmm. and you know um, the idea that he is not able to to do that or maybe mm-hmm. he or maybe it's that he doesn't recognize the transformation the transformative um, cross-likeness of the things that he has gone through mm. and he isn't able to see you know the way his suffering can be sort of transformative can be almost like you know like the like the suffering of Roskolnikov at the end mm-hmm. of crime and punishment where you combine this the sort of the like necess- the um forced asceticism that he goes through yeah. combined with sonya's love and that helps transform him and resurrect him as the book says and here barnes is unable to see the sort of transformative power of the things that he has suffered for, his suffering and that's what all these characters are going through exactly I agree with that
0: completely. I think that that's a huge part of this novel is that there's, they can't. So, so one of the, the, uh, I don't want to say archetypes because that makes it sound too old and ancient and it's new. One of the, the uh, common character types in modern novels, capital M modern is the character of the impotent or silent witness. Somebody who sees Something happening, some terrible thing happening, and doesn't act. Uh, we see that in a lot of modern novels and in this novel, that's the hero of the story it's jake and and he's the protagonist, so we're rooting for him all the time and he's uh, he's definitely the most popular character because he's no threat to any of the other men, right? Because he doesn't have virility. He's impotent. So, yeah,
1: they're all buddies with him.
0: Right. Everybody, you can always, you know, there's Brett at the center. And in most novels, a woman is an orienting and unifying principle, somebody to idealize and, uh, and, and fight for and become better for. And in this novel, Brett is a disorienting principle in the novel. So again, there's the subversion of the traditional form. And it doesn't mean we don't have sympathy for her, but she is a um some people don't and she refers to herself as a bitch often as we're getting into the novel here. But she's she is um we want the hero to get the girl and that's impossible in this novel, but he's still this very popular character. And that's part of his sadness, though, right? That's part of the pathos, because he's no threat to any of the other men. And that's kind of sad. So we have Mm. this like impotent, silent witness to all of the disorder of the novel, and yet he can do nothing, and he can't um, fix it. He can't resolve it. Right. So the best he can hope for, then, what he has settled for and what we see in this scene in the church is a life lived by sensation under and I'm, by that i mean like the physical senses i don't mean like going out and creating flamboyant scenes he doesn't do that but he's he's a very sensory kind of person and that is what we see in the fishing scene and maybe we can transition there that
1: yeah let's do that
0: that he's what he goes out and does and i'll tell you this i was reading then i was reading this whole section to scott this morning i'm like this is the book that made me fall in love with the idea of travel. And um, I read this, when I read this in college, it was Hemingway, it was actually a movable feast. It was Mm. Hemingway that's like, wow, wow the world is like a beautiful place and I want to go experience it. His characters experience, there's always some kind of peaceful hearts, like quiet heart of the book of Mm. of every Hemingway novel in which there's like food and nature and um, some kind of athletic experience whether it's fishing or hunting or whatever. And, um, and good weather and good wine. And it just, it's this peaceful kind of, beautiful heart, the, the best that in this fishing scene, we get the best of life lived under the sun.
1: Hmm. Like the most of course, most it's it right in the offer. middle of the book, page numbers wise.
0: Yes. Yeah, and right. it's significant that it's fishing. I have one thing to say about the fishing.
1: Um, I'm going to try to keep of, it. Ch- a lot of fishing on close reach this so year. There's so much
0: fishing. And it's, here's, here's what, one thing that Hemingway is doing, again, this is averting of traditional literary forms. Uh, and I've spoken about this many times, um, because it's my favorite medieval story, uh, is that this is a retelling of, um, The Fisher King narrative, which is a very, very old story from the, and it's the very first grail legend ever written in the history of time. The first, the very first time that the Holy Grail is mentioned in Western literature is written in connection with the fishing, with the Fisher King. Um, And the Fisher King is a, the king of a land that's been cursed, that's become a wasteland. And the reason that the land is cursed is because the king has committed a grave sexual sin, um, and we don't know what it is in the story, but it's a very grave sin. And so he's been cursed with a wound that makes him impotent. And that's a big deal if you're a king, because if you're a king, you have to provide heirs for the land. So because of the wound of the king, the land itself, which is connected to the leadership of the king, begins to die. So the land becomes a wasteland. And the only way to heal the land is to heal the king. And so a knight comes along, Sir Percival, and then the rest of the story is Sir for Percival's attempt to heal the king. And he has to go through um, many adventures in order to do that. So what we have here is an impotent man going fishing And the land itself is actually beautiful, um, which adds another layer of pathos to it, right? Because again, he's living in a life lived under the sun. There's nothing beyond the sun for Jake. Everything is just earthbound. Um, And he's happy here, Um, but he has to be healed. And in the story, there's no possibility of him ever being healed because he is a reflection of the wounded society in which he lives. Um, And so- Hemingway is doing some really complex, really amazing um, and beautiful reflections on uh, what it means to be a wounded person in a wounded land. Um, And then along with that, we also have this like really cool fishing story.
2: (laughs) Tim, were you going to say something? I just wanted to flash forward. Heidi said that uh, Brett is this disorienting figure kind of in the center of all these men we haven't gotten to it yet do you guys remember what robert cone calls her his allusion to classic literature it's not in this week so maybe maybe i won't answer the question it'll be a cliffhanger for next something
1: week. something for people to look out for next week
2: for <laughs> he calls her you can probably if you're familiar with um the kind of titans of greek literature you could probably make a pretty good guess about the allusion he makes cliffhanger, cliffhanger
1: tune in next week with a good hint or just read just read the book
2: (laughs) (laughs) um let's read
1: some of this this fishing scene and kind of dive into that would you would you say we should start around like 122 say um where um the
0: road went up a hill or
1: yeah maybe even the paragraph before that it was a beach wood and the trees are very old yeah this um. is.
0: I read this entire, like, four pages to Scott out, um, on our porch this morning. It's just so lovely.
1: Okay, so there's a narrator, and there's Bill, and there's Jake. Who do you mm-hmm. want to be, Heidi?
0: I'll be the narrator.
1: All right. Uh, Tim, Jake, or Bill? Jake. All right, I'll be Bill.
0: It was a beechwood, and the trees were very old. Their roots bulked above the ground, and the branches were twisted. We walked on the road between the thick trunks of the old beeches, and the sunlight came through the leaves and light patches on the grass. The trees were big, and the foliage was thick, but it was not gloomy. There was no undergrowth, only the smooth grass, very green and fresh, and the big gray trees well spaced as though it were a park.
1: This is country.
0: The road went up a hill, and we got into thick woods, and the road kept on climbing. Sometimes it dipped down, but rose again steeply. All the time, we heard the cattle in the woods. Finally, the road came out on the top of the hills. We were on the top of the height of land that was the highest part of the range of wooded hills we had seen from Burgett. There were wild strawberries growing on the sunny side of the ridge in a little clearing in the trees. Ahead, the road came out of the forest and went along the shoulder of the Ridge of Hills. The hills ahead were not wooded, and there were great fields of yellow gorse. Way off, we saw the steep bluffs, dark with trees and jutting with gray stone that marked the course of the Arati River.
2: We have to follow this road along the ridge, cross these hills, go through the woods on the far side, and come down to the Arati Valley. That's a hell of a hike. It's too far to go and fish and come back the same day comfortably. Comfortably. That's a nice word.
1: We'll have to go like hell to get there and back and have any fishing at all.
0: It was a long walk and the country was very fine, but we were tired when we came down the steep road that led out of the wooded hills into the valley of the Rio de la Fabrica. The road came out from the shadow of the woods into the hot sun. Ahead was a river valley. Beyond the river was a steep hill. There was a field of buckwheat on the hill. We saw a white house under some trees on the hillside. It was very hot and we stopped under some trees beside a dam that crossed the river. Bill put the pack against one of the trees and we jointed up the rods, put on the reels, tied on leaders, and got ready to fish.
1: You're sure this thing has
2: trout in it? It's full of them.
1: I'm going to fish a fly. You got any McGinty's? There's some in there. you going to fish bait?
2: Yeah, I'm going to fish the dam here.
1: Well, I'll take the fly book then. Where'd I, where'd I better go, up or down?
2: Down is the best. They're pretty up above. There are plenty up above, too.
0: Bill went down the bank. Take a worm can.
1: No, I don't want one. If they won't take a fly, I'll just flick it around.
0: Bill was down below watching the stream.
1: Say, how about putting the wine in that spring up the road? All right.
0: Bill waved his hand and started down the stream. I found the two wine bottles in the pack and carried them up the road to where the water of a spring flowed out of an iron pipe. There was a board over the spring and I lifted it and knocking the corks firmly into the bottles, lowered them down into the water. It was so cold my hand and wrist felt numbed. I put back the slab of wood and hoped nobody would find the wine. I got my rod that was leaning against the tree, took the bait can and landing net and walked out onto the dam. It was built to provide a head of water for driving logs. The gate was up and I sat on one of the squared timbers and watched the smooth apron of water before the river tumbled into the falls. In the white water at the foot of the dam, it was deep. As I baited up, a trout shot up out of the white water into the falls and was carried down. Before I could finish baiting, another trout jumped at the falls, making the same lovely arc and disappearing into the water that was thundering down. I put on a good-sized sinker and dropped into the white water close to the edge of the timbers of the dam. I did not feel the first trout strike. When I started to pull up, I felt that I had one and brought him, fighting and bending the rod almost double, out of the boiling water at the foot of the falls and swung him up and onto the dam. He was a good trout, and I banged his head against the timber so that he quivered out straight and then slipped him into my bag. While I had him on, several trout had jumped at the falls. As soon as I baited up and dropped in again, I hooked another and brought him in the same way. In a little while, I had six. They were all about the same size. I laid them out side by side, all their heads pointing the same way, and looked at them. They were beautifully colored and firm and hard from the cold water. It was a hot day. So I slit them all and shucked out the insides, gills and all, and tossed them over the river. I took the trout ashore, washed them in the cold, smoothly heavy water above the dam, and then picked some ferns and packed them all in the bag. Three trout on a layer of ferns, then another layer of ferns, then three more trout, and then covered them with ferns. They looked nice in the ferns, and now the bag was bulky, and I put it in the shade of the tree. It was very hot on the dam, so I put my worm can in the shade with the bag and got a book out of the pack and settled down under the tree to read until Bill should come up for lunch. It was a little past noon and there was not much shade, but I sat against the trunk of two of the trees that grew together and read, the book was something by A.E.W. Mason. And I was reading a wonderful story about a man who had been frozen in the Alps and then fallen into a glacier and disappeared. And his bride was going to wait 24 years exactly for his body to come out on the moraine while her true love waited too. And they were still waiting when Bill came up. Get any? He had his rod and his bag and his net all in one hand, and he was sweating. I hadn't heard him come up because of the noise from the dam.
2: Six. What did you get?
0: Bill sat down, opened up his bag, laid a big trout on the grass. He took out three more, each a little bigger than the last, and laid them side by side in the shade from the tree. His face was sweaty and happy.
1: How are yours? Smaller. Let's see them. They're packed. How big are they really?
2: They're all about the size of your smallest.
1: You're not holding out on me? I wish I were. Get them all in worms? Yes. You lazy bum.
0: Bill put the trout in the bag and started for the river, swinging the open bag. He was wet from the waist down, and I knew he must have been wading the stream. I walked up the road and got out the two bottles of wine. They were cold. Moisture beaded on the bottles as I walked back to the trees. I spread the lunch on a newspaper and uncorked one of the bottles and leaned the other against a tree. Bill came up, drying his hands, his bag plump with ferns.
1: Let's see that bottle.
0: He pulled the cork and tipped up the bottle and drank.
1: Whew, that makes my eyes ache. Let's try it.
0: The wine was icy cold and tasted faintly rusty.
1: That's not such filthy wine.
2: The cold helps it.
0: We unwrapped the little parcels of lunch.
2: That's you, Bill. Is it? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Hmm?
1: I think it's you because it's then you. otherwise Bill has back-to-back lines in four lines. Oh, yeah. you're
2: right. Chicken.
1: There's hard-boiled eggs. Find any salt? First the egg, then the chicken. <laughs> Even Brian could <can> see that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> He's dead. I read it in the paper yesterday.
1: No, not really.
2: Yes, Brian's dead.
0: Bill laid down the egg he was peeling. Gentlemen. And he said and unwrapped a drumstick from a piece of newspaper
1: i reverse the order, for Brian's sake, as a tribute to the great commoner. First the chicken, then the egg.
2: Wonder what day God created the chicken.
1: Oh, how how should we know? We should not question. Our stay on earth is not for long. Let us rejoice and believe and give thanks. Eat an egg.
0: Bill gestured with the drumstick in one hand and the bottle of wine in the other.
1: Let us rejoice in our blessings. Let us utilize the fowls of the air. Let us utilize the product of the vine. Will you utilize a little brother? After you, brother.
0: Bill took a long drink.
1: Utilize a little, brother. He handed me the bottle. Let us not doubt, brother. Let us not pry into the holy mysteries of the hen coop with (laughs) simian fingers. Let us accept accept on faith and simply say, I want you to join me in saying it with me in saying, what shall we say, brother?
0: He pointed the drumstick at me and went on.
1: Let me tell you, we will say, and I for one am proud to say, and I want you to stay with me on your knees, brother. Let no man be ashamed to kneel here in the great outer doors. Remember the woods were God's first temples. Let us kneel and say, don't eat that lady. That's Mencken.
2: Here, utilize a little of this.
1: We
0: uncorked the other bottle.
2: (laughs) What's the matter? Didn't you like Brian? I loved Brian. We were like brothers. Where did you know him? He and Mencken and I all went to Holy Cross together. And Frankie Fitch...
1: It's a lie. Frankie Fresh didn't go to Ford when Frankie Fresh went to Fordham.
2: Well, I went to Loyola with Bishop Manning. It's a lie. I went to Loyola with Bishop
1: Manning myself. You're cockeyed. On wine? Why not? It's the humidity. They ought to make this. They ought to take this damn humidity away.
2: I have another shot. Is this all we got? Only the two bottles.
0: Do you know what you are? Bill looked at the bottle affectionately. <laughs>
1: no you are in the pay of the anti-saloon league
2: i went to notre dame with wayne b wheeler
1: it's a lie i went to austin business college with wayne (laughs) b wheeler he was class president well the saloon must go you're right there old classmate the saloon must go and i will take it with me you're cockeyed on wine on wine well maybe i am want to take a nap all right we
0: lay with our heads in the shade and looked up into the trees.
1: Should we Should we stop there or should Maybe we keep so. going? Yeah, <laughs> no. So there's a lot of um, proper names. I mean, see, uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of proper names here. And at the bottom, there is the part where I just want to point it out. There is um, a point where um, Bill says, I'm going to sleep. He put a newspaper over his face. And then he says, listen, Jake, are you really a Catholic?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Jake says, mm-hmm. technically. And Bill says, what does that mean? And Jake says, I don't know. Um, and then Bill says, don't keep me awake by talking so much. <laughs> 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 um, Bill's so
0: great.
2: The scene, scene
1: is really funny. And and I think that it, because of the proper nouns and because, like, you have to read it a few times to, yeah. for all the humor to really come out. Heidi, would you like to do a little lecture on William Jennings Bryan and H.L. Mencken and, or Tim or whoever?
0: I'll take William Jennings Bryan. Um, he was an orator and Politician. He died in 1925. In um, he was uh, the uh, he was a big time lawyer uh, in the Scopes Monkey Trial, and he argued against evolution. Hence, the chicken and the egg joke.
1: Yeah, um, D- and Dayton, Tennessee. Maybe people yes. might remember the. That trial and there's
0: a Bryan College to this day. I know some people who yep. uh, who went to college there, uh, and so he was a traditionalist. He defended uh, the faith. Um, he defended, um, or he fought against, you know, evolution in the Scopes Monkey Trial. So he was known for being a great conservative.
2: Jim, do you? As a side note, yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
2: he was a great conservative. He ran for president four times as a Democrat. <laughs> Which, you know, like, man, the political world is shit, yep. hasn't it?
1: Yeah. That is so
0: funny. And then, he was so, super famous at the time.
1: And then there's the Mencken connection. Tim, do you do you want to talk about Mencken at all?
2: Mencken was a uh, journalist for the Baltimore Sun around the time of this book being written. Like, And he was he was maybe the antithesis of Brian. He was... You could probably call him a progressive. He was really just an acerbic wit was what he was. And he was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant writer. Um, yeah, that's probably all that needs to be said.
1: Well, except that he also, he was the reporter at the monk at the, at the scopes trial who called it the monkey trial. Yeah. Uh, he he, re- he was a satirical reporter at that trial and and, and dubbed that dubbed it the monkey trial it was one of the things that gained him attention he also, for what it 's worth if you 're interested, he wrote a, a book called the American Language and it was a multi book um, i guess study of how English language is spoken in the United States. It was one of the first real scholarly tomes of uh, in terms of american english uh, really really interesting guy um definitely not um of the same mindset as William Jennings Bryan, though.
2: (laughs) Right. I think it's really interesting to kind of continue with the theme that I tried to open up um, last week. If this book is happening at kind of like a a pivotal moment and the West is sort of shifting from... um, is shifting off the kind of traditional moorings that it's had then I think that inserting William Jennings Bryan into the story is not just a coincidence. It's not just that William Jennings Bryan happened to die in 1925 and this book happened to be published in 1926. There are plenty of people that died in 25 and 26, but Hemingway chose Bryan and kind of juxtaposed him a little bit with Mencken. Again, I think reinforcing the theme that this big shift is taking place. Whereas a hundred years ago, everyone, uh, with some exaggeration, is going to believe that, well, the world was created by God, and he created it in a very short amount of time. Now, Brian is defending the kind of perceived encroachments of Darwinism in a court trial, and Darwin – excuse me, Brian wins the court trial, but he loses the big – kind of battle over going forward yeah. wins the battle loses the war yeah exactly exactly so i just think that like the little mention of brian and mencken are indicative of the time they're not just happenstance mentions they're i think they're yeah selected well
1: and, and then of course there's the question um jake i think it's important that jake asks it what wonder what day god created the chicken and then Bill says, ah, how should we know? We, we're we not, we shouldn't question it. We're, our stay on earth isn't for long. So why even bother thinking about it? Let's just rejoice and believe and give thanks, which are like these abstracts. That yes, could yes, mean yes, anything. Yes. Yeah. Um, yep. You don't really know if he means it. Is he, you know, he's the, the whole section is dripping with sarcasm and irony. And of course there's even the section, that passage earlier where they're talking about irony and how no one knows what irony is. And can you be ironic in the way you speak and all that kind of stuff. Um. And so you, and then so even in the two of them, that question, that conversation, is the conversation that people all over the world were having yeah. in the wake mm-hmm. of this trial. And the answer, well, yeah, we shouldn't bother questioning it. Right? Is a is not a question. Is not a way that would have the, the that the universe, the people would have answered it for thousands of years. Right?
0: Exactly. Just to dismiss
1: yeah. the question and say, oh, just don't worry about it. Just rejoice, live life. You know, drink your wine. That's. You know, I mean, maybe the Epicureans to some degree, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. but not in in this way, not in this way to say that none of it matters. Mm -hmm.
0: This um, section that we just read has my favorite, one of my favorite descriptive sentences in the whole book, and it's, the wine was icy cold and tasted faintly rusty. (laughs) So if you know anything about wine, that's like a really good white wine. Is cold and tastes a little rusty. I don't know. There's something about that and the beaded moisture on the bottles um, that is just, it's part of my inner impression of the landscape of this book. Like, whenever I think of this book, I always think of that wine in the trout stream beaded and yeah. pulling it out and it tastes rusty. And then also, Bill has my favorite, like, I actually called my friend and asked her to make me a sign that says the road to hell is paved with unbought stuffed dogs. <laughs> <laughs> funny, is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> That is just the best. This is
1: like, this is the kind of
0: stuff. That is awesome. This is I what just, makes like you know yeah. it's a
1: romantic Clef or whatever. However you say that word, where yeah. you know like it's a it's a piece of fiction that's based roughly on real people because those are the kind of things and it builds the kind of character that you know Hemingway ran up against somebody that was vaguely like this that inspired it because totally. you just don't come up with there's not enough there's not enough innovation in the world to come up with that off the top of your head.
0: <laughs> I kind of want like I also kind of want. To remember, I wrote this, so I I keep this Google doc with like ideas for our house because someday we want to renovate it. Um, And I want something in our, if we have a bar in our renovated house that has the word daunted on it. Because I just, I loved that too. Like the the reference to being daunted. And I, I just, he's so funny. Hemingway is so funny. And these characters are lovable in spite of their... Toxic masculinity, to use a um, term that is not even real. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, certainly,
1: and certainly wasn't real then. <laughs>
2: wasn't real then. <laughs> I think toxic masculinity is a real thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Absolutely a real thing. Yes. She said the term isn't real. I don't know
1: what that means. Yeah. I don't know how a term yeah. that she just used out loud can, can be a not real thing. But.
0: <laughs> well, I'm postmodern, so. <laughs> <laughs> right,
2: yeah.
1: Tim, go ahead. You were leaning forward. You were ready to say
2: something. I was just going to say, I have a feeling that Heidi is surrounded by quality man you so you fortunately don't have to be exposed to like the very real reality of toxic masculinity maybe you do i shouldn't presume your experience maybe maybe you do i know but all about toxic masculinity Tim, at yep. the same
1: time she goes to total wine or the wine store and she gets herself a nice albarino a good spanish white she takes it over to the to the to some cold colorado creek and she sticks it in there she goes fishing she comes back later
0: it's beaded with moisture
1: tasting tasting faintly rusty Mm -hmm. so good i do recommend that experience for all people
2: (laughs) say again tim do you wash it do you wash the wine bottles first in the smoothly heavy water i love that yes like yeah some water is heavier than other water Mm -hmm. it is smoother than other water like don't ask me how this is possible but it is possible Mm. Yeah. And a
0: smooth apron before it goes over the dam. It's just Hemingway, man. Now we're just waxing eloquent as we said we would.
2: <laughs> Real quickly, since we're like, are coming... Quick, yeah, we got to wrap it up. I just I told you guys that I had a little story about the first actual copy of The Sun Also Rises that I had, and I have a copy of it here. I will post a picture of it today or tomorrow on the Facebook page. My copy that I had that I think I got when I was in college, I cherished that book. I loved it. It meant so much to me. And my friend wanted to borrow it because he had heard me talking about this book. And so he wanted to borrow, hey, can I borrow it? And I was like, yeah, just please take good care of it because I, I'm not a terribly sentimental guy, but I've, I've got some sentiment associated with this book. Okay, no problem. The book disappears and it disappears for a while. And my friend comes to me and he says, I don't even know how to tell you this. I was like, oh no. He said, you know my new puppy dog? I was like, oh no. And he said, yeah. So David, Heidi, here is that book. Here it is.
0: <laughs> wow. It has a, a tragic wound.
2: It is. The four <laughs> are chewed off. It is reaffixed. The spine is reaffixed with medical tape. And I've written on the spine, Ernest Hemingway, the sun also rises in kind of this jagged, this jagged ballpoint print. <laughs> and it's completely falling apart. I mean, literally the corners just got chewed off. So-
0: Your book is Jake.
2: My book is Jake, the poor guy. I had to remedy the situation. So I had friends going to Paris and they said, hey, is there anything that we can bring back For you. And I said, There is. I want a copy of The Sun Also Rises, and I want it bought at the particular bookstore where Hemingway used to go shopping for books, as reported in um, A A Movable Feast. It's called Shakespeare and Company Bookstore. Mm -hmm. And I want a stamp in the front leaf fly of the book, signifying that it came from. Shakespeare and Company. Shakespeare and Co. So, and <laughs> there you go. There's the stamp on the inside cover.
1: You're gonna have to. Yeah, you need to post a uh, post this on Instagram too, and I'll I'll add it to the uh, close reads feed. Okay, I'll do that. I'll share I'll, it as a, one of our stories. Um, yeah, Shakespeare and Company is one of those places I want to go
2: one day. Oh, uh, I read if you, a movable feast. I literally climbed up into the second floor. You're gonna love this, Heidi climbed in the second floor there's a little red cushioned window seat that looks out over the city like the cobblestone city and i sat up there and i had read a movable feast before and i sat up there and i got a copy from the bookstore and i read i think i read the entire book in an afternoon sitting up in that bookstore looking at a repair so i was like i'm good
1: (laughs) if you've seen before sunset the movie um that that uh has a the beginning of that movie takes place in Shakespeare and company.
2: Oh, does it really? The Ethan, Ethan, Ethan Hawk movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's the second one in the trilogy. And it's, so it, he's, a he's become a writer and he's, uh, Julie Duffy's character comes to hear him read. He's reading, doing a reading at Shakespeare and company. And then they, oh, wow. it's like outside the, the shop and everything. And then of course they wander around Paris, but how do you've never seen before sunrise and before sunset? It.
0: No, Oh my. I walked by Shakespeare and Company though, but I didn't go. And we didn't go inside.
1: Your homework for this week is to watch before sunset, okay. before sunrise, before sunset, and before midnight. The greatest oh, trilogy of movies of ever made.
0: Is that is that your statement? Mm-hmm. Really? Okay, all right, I'm on it. I accept it's the, this. It's the
1: greatest trilogy, mission, the most consistently great it. trilogy of movies. Better than The Hobbit. Made. Was- no, the Hobbit movies are terrible.
0: Oh, okay. Silence. <laughs> oh, <love> the crickets. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the first half hour of the first Hobbit movie is wonderful. And then after that, it kind of... It gets kind it of it
2: collapses, yeah.
1: Um, no, I, I just think it's consistent. Like, they're not long. They're an hour and a half each. And they're made 12 years apart. Um, huh. And they're movies where it's like real time, basically. I think the third one's not. But they're basically real time. So it's like... Huh. At least the middle one is. But And they're like... Uh, walk and talk movies ethan hawk and julie delpy and the first one it's they meet um in vienna uh and they're on train it's like before cell phones and all that kind of stuff and then they decide they're going to meet up again later and i'll leave let you know what happens and then 10 years later they meet up she finds him at a bookstore reading his book and then later on you have to watch the whole series it's great i'm definitely Wonderful. gonna watch them
0: yep my kids are going to school tomorrow so i you know have nothing useful to do, so I'll probably just watch movies all day.
1: <laughs> well, that, those that, that trilogy will take you about five hours, so it's perfect. Yeah, they're only like an hour and a half long. um I don't know how we got on that, but we need to wrap this up, Tim. We need to okay. let you go. What's what do you want people to? Look? Well, you already said what you want people to look for. You want people to look for what they refer, what Hemingway refers to Brett as.
2: That's exactly right. It's actually Robert
1: Cohn calls Robert him. Cohn does. Yeah, that's right. That's right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Heidi, what about you?
0: So the contrast between, so I, this quiet heart of the book, when they go fishing and they're happy and it's lovely, um, there is kind of a dark underbelly to it, but their experience itself is really, this is the best of what under the sun has to offer. A life lived under the sun is, this is the best of it. So look for, look for a comparison and a contrast between that and what comes next? And then, because one of the, this really isn't an aimless book. It might feel that way, but it's not. So look for connections and juxtapositions as we've talked about. So we have now a good experience under the sun. Uh, look for how that compares and contrasts with what's coming next.
1: Um, if you have questions that, you know, I know some people are having a hard time with Hemingway. If you do have questions, post them into the group and we'll try to address some of them even though it's not a Q&A episode, but we'll just see if we can loop some of your concerns and questions and conundrums in. Otherwise, of course, we'll have the Q&A at the end. But, um, there are a couple more episodes here in the Q&A and then I believe it's time to dive into Marilyn Robinson's Home, which we'll be discussing in advance of the publication of Jack, Jack. which is the, what, the fourth book in the series. Home is one of, uh, is my favorite book in the series so far, so I'm really excited huh. about that. Um, and uh, I guess that's... Tim, what's going on with the Plays of Thing? You guys are getting ready to do a Q&A for Corley Alanis, right?
2: That's right. And we are getting ready to do Merchant of Venice. We're back Merchant of Venice. And that's uh, the three of you, right? That's the three of us. And we will probably have at least one guest on the show to be nice, announced nice. on the show. Great.
1: So make sure you're subscribed. Okay, everybody. So if I sound a little different, it's because Zoom just dropped our call. So right as Tim was explaining uh, about the podcast. So I just want to remind you, go subscribe to the Play's the Thing wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a star review if you like it. Leave a leave a written review if you can. Uh, lots of great content on there. And even if you can't, you know, listen to it in the moment, whenever you comes time to read or teach that play, you will have easy access to it. Uh, I wanted to also let you know we have two new podcasts, uh, at least two new podcasts coming on the Cersei Podcast Network this fall. So get prepared for those. Uh, There's one for moms. And then there's also going to be one for dads. And we'll have information on each of those coming soon uh, and a lot of other great stuff happening. So just be on the lookout for that if you want to sign up for our newsletter. Remember, you can do that at closereads.substack.com. And, of course, you can join the conversation on Facebook. Just type in Closereads in in the search bar and join the conversation group there. And then on Instagram, we are at pods. With that, I'll say farewell. For Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading.